uh, who have been around, you know that for a couple months now, we've been working our way through uh, a sermon series entitled The Story. Um, If you're new, uh, the purpose of that series is simply to unpack the major chapters of God's uh, divine, redemptive, historical drama, to unpack the lens through which we should look at the scriptures rightly. And so uh, the goal has been to take a look at the four major acts of, of redemptive history, namely the act of creation, uh, the act of the fall of man, the act of redemption in Christ, and the act of the restoration of all things to come in the end. And so uh, you'll notice we have hanging banners on either side of me, and each of those banners represents one of those particular acts. And so uh, if you come in and you go, man, I, I would love to understand the Bible a little bit more. You can do that by simply after the service hanging around for a few minutes and just reading those banners from left to right. We are currently on banner number four, uh, the, the end of all things as Jesus returns to make everything sad, untrue. But don't let me get a, ahead of myself here. Um, the purpose of this series has been uh, simply to refute some cultural beliefs that I think are dangerous, especially in our context uh, here in the Bible Belt. Um, Namely, number one, that the Bible is just a bunch of stories piecemealed haphazardly together, that they're not all connected. Um, Rather, my hope, if you've been around for the entirety of this series, is that uh, you now see, if you didn't before, that the Bible is is one glorious, uh, overarching, grand, redemptive, historical drama with the creative, artistic God of the universe as its author. Another thing that that we're seeking to push back against in this series is this idea that the Bible is ultimately a book of rules. Um, Are there rules in the Bible? Yes and amen to that. But the Bible is not ultimately about you and what you do or don't do, but rather it's about God and what he has done in the person and work of Jesus. This series is also pushed back against the idea that uh, the Bible is nothing more than a bunch of heroes to be emulated. Are there some heroic people in the Bible? Absolutely. Most of them fall on their faces at some point uh, in the course of their story. And so the idea is that uh, if you've been with us throughout the course of this series, the hope is that you now see the Bible not as a book of heroes ultimately to be emulated, but rather a redemptive story meant to point us to one true hero who binds the entire story together, and his name is Jesus. For those of you who have been here week in and week out, you probably noticed that I've attempted to recap this series every single week in a more intentional way than I historically have. And so we've devoted about eight to ten minutes every single Sunday on the front end to a recap of this series. And the reason is because I think this series is very much a a, a DNA-shaping series for this church. It very much shapes the way you're going to pick up your Bible tomorrow and the next day and the next day and the next day. And so I, I think it's critical that we recap this thing every week and make sure that we're grabbing hold of this, especially uh, in a context in which if you serve in kids' ministry, as an example, you've automatically missed 25% of the series. And so it's critical to, to go back and to listen online, um, work your way through this series from start to finish, even once we're finished with it, and go, am I, am I wrapping my mind around this? Is my heart buying into this lens through which we as a church are looking at the scriptures? 
And so I want to do that again this morning. I want to recap very briefly. We began this series by uh, doing what any uh, good reader should do as they pick up a a new book. We flipped over to the back dust cover and took a look at the about the author snippet. That uh, the author uh, and his or her experiences shape the very story that he or she is writing. Uh, The author's worldview shapes the story that he or she is writing. And it's no different with the God of the universe who happens to be the author of the scriptures. This divine redemptive historical drama that we call the Bible. As we moved from the about the author snippet, we took a look at the act of creation. We looked at Genesis 1, which gives us the panoramic view of the creation story as God gets to work designing the stage upon which this divine redemptive historical drama would take place, hanging uh, stage lights from outer space in the form of sun and moon and stars and shaping the land and the, and the waters and the skies into inhabitable domains and creating a supporting cast of creatures to fill the those domains. And then we shifted into Genesis chapter 2 where uh, the, the camera zooms in on man in God's perfect utopian garden sanctuary of Eden, uh, worshiping God under God's rule and blessing. A perfect utopia filled with a thousand, and yet there's that one tree that God says, don't, don't eat of that one. And everyone panics in a moment as we read that for the first time. Genesis 3, we see the antagonist, the villain, show up on the scene, none other than Satan himself. He calls into question the trustworthiness of God's word. Did God really say, can God really be trusted? He paints a picture of a world in which uh, rather than submitting to God's rules and playing by God's rules, man can call the shots, a world of self-determination a world of judicial autonomy. Uh, Rather than God's world and God's word, Satan says it can be your world. In your word. And in the moment, the forbidden becomes a delight to the eyes in our first parents' sin against God. And they find that they don't feel like God at all. Rather, they feel exposed. They feel ashamed. Uh, They go into cover-up mode like all of us do when we see our sin for what it truly is. And the very joy that Adam and Eve were created for, to bask in the presence of God, that's the very thing that they run from like a couple of fugitives. All of a sudden, the perfect Uh, utopian garden sanctuary uh, becomes the landscape for a game of cosmic hide-and-go-seek with God, a game that man can never win because God knows all the hiding places in the universe. The perfect garden sanctuary of Eden shifts into a courtroom scene on the back half of Genesis 3 with God as both judge and jury. As any good judge would do, God punishes the guilty parties. Eve is cursed with the, the pains of childbearing. Adam is cursed with the toil, with the pain of work. Um, human conflict enters in, uh, into the story of human history, uh, especially and specifically within the context of covenant marriage. Cherishing and loving are now replaced with dominating and ruling. Man experiences not only uh, spiritual death as the relational umbilical cord between man and God is severed, but also physical death in great irony. Uh, Man will now be swallowed up by the very earth that he was meant to exercise dominion over. Even creation itself experiences the effects of the curse. We know that when we look out on the landscape of even our very yards. The glorious stage of God's redemptive historical drama is now filled with thorns and thistles. Everything's broken. But in in the midst of the curse, God offers hope. Amidst a number of acts of God's grace in the wake of Adam and Eve's sin, God makes a glorious promise 
that a hero is going to come, a descendant of Eve who will crush the serpent's head, the very one who deceived man in the beginning. So halfway through this series, as we close the chapter on banner number two there, the act of the fall of man, we left the garden and traced the promise of a hero in Genesis 3 to its fulfillment. We spent some time in in Romans 5, which declares that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promise, that Jesus is the serpent-crushing hero and savior who takes the curse of the garden and turns it upside down on its head, that Adam sinned, uniting us to himself as condemned sinners, but Jesus obeyed perfectly, uniting us to himself by faith and gifting us his righteous record. In other words, in Adam we stand condemned, but in Jesus we stand justified. Uh, we, We spent some time in Romans 6, uh, taking a look at and talking about the fact that the gospel not only saves us from sin's penalty, it's not not just a past tense power, it's not Jesus saved me and now I just coast to my death, but rather the gospel also saves us from sin's power, present tense. Jesus didn't just remove the guilty verdict before God, he also removed the shackles of sin so that we're now free to worship God and enjoy making much of him forever. Last week, we shifted into future tense mode. We took a look at Revelation chapter 21, the future tense hope of the gospel, the new heaven and earth, everything sad coming untrue, no more tears, no more pain, no more death, eternal satisfaction, eternal security, saved from sin's presence forever. God's people inhabiting God's eternal city, the new Jerusalem, which shines with with the glory of God, with the splendor of God. No need for a temple because the entire city is a temple. It's the holy of holies, all-encompassing God's presence. No need of sun, moon, and stars because the glory of God will light up the entire city like the 4th of July. A global, ethnic, uh, diverse citizenship who will collectively declare Jesus as king. And now, now we shift into the final chapter of the Bible, the last recorded words of Scripture. What's God going to leave us with? I mean, think about that. If you were on your deathbed, what would you record out as your last words? What would you want to leave behind uh, for your loved ones to read and to know and to take into account as they live out the course of their days? Let's take a look at that. If you have a Bible, you can open up to Revelation chapter 22. That's where we'll be this morning. If you don't have a Bible, there should be one underneath one of the seats in front of you nearby. You can grab one of those Bibles and open up to this morning's passage. Take that Bible for free as the church's gift to you if you don't own a Bible and use it to uh, explore the truth claims of Christianity on your own time. We'd be very excited about that. Let me pray for us and we'll, we'll just jump in and we'll get to work. God, thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for revealing a glimpse of what the future will look like. Though you've left a great deal to mystery, which is probably good for our own egos, uh, you do give us a glimpse uh, into some of the, the details, some of the nuances of what the new heaven and earth will be like, will look like. And it gives us something to hope for. It does unquestionably shape the present for us, the idea that uh, becoming heavenly-minded makes you no earthly good is absurd. It's a false dichotomy. Rather, to get a glimpse of the eternal prepares us very well for the present. 
And so I got, got to pray this morning that as we get a glimpse of your glory uh, futuristically, that it would shape our very lives. It would shape tomorrow and Tuesday and Wednesday and Thursday and Friday and Saturday, that it would destroy this idea of compartmentalized Christianity, this idea that uh, I'm a Christian a couple hours on Sunday and maybe a couple hours at another point in the week when I gather in a living room with a small group. So much more robust than that. God, give us a glimpse of your glory that would awaken our hearts uh, in such a way that the gospel uh, shapes us in the coming days. We lift this up uh, by the power of the Spirit in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen. Now, here's how incredible and artistic the God of the universe is. Okay, Remember... I just said it. Genesis 1 gives us this panoramic view of the creation story. And then Genesis 2 zooms in on man in God's uh, perfect utopian garden sanctuary very intimately. Well, Revelation 21 and 22 are laid out exactly the same way. That uh, Revelation 21, which we looked at last week, is a panoramic view of the new heaven and earth. Right? If you were here last week, you saw this massive city. This city that, that could inhabit millions upon millions of people. You saw this uh, global, diverse citizenship. This is, this is high up in the sky, 50,000 feet above the ground, looking out on the forest. We're not yet in the trees, futuristically. So last week, we saw this panoramic view of God and his glory and what's to come in the future. That just as God in Genesis 1 hung stage lights from outer space in the form of sun, moon, and stars. Last week in Revelation 21, we talked about the fact that God replaces sun, moon, and stars with his own glory as the stage lighting for eternity. That just as God in Genesis 1, panoramic view, shaped the land and the seas and the sky into inhabitable domains, so God, as we looked at last week in Revelation 21, restores the sea from chaos to order. Revelation 21 is unquestionably a panoramic view of the new heavens and earth. Now, in Revelation 22, the camera zooms in just like it did in Genesis chapter 2. Let's take a look at it. Verse 1. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Okay, so the first thing that we see when, when the camera zooms in is a river. Remember Genesis 2.10 and the story of creation, for those of you who were around at the beginning of this series? We were told, a river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. Okay, Now you have this, this river that flows through the middle of the eternal city, reminding, reminding us of Eden prior to the fall, when all was perfect, when all was utopian, when all was bliss. God's putting bookends on this story that, that drives home the promise that he's going to make everything sad untrue. It's going to happen. It will not only be like God's original creation in, in the garden sanctuary of Eden, it will be exponentially more glorious, as we'll see in just a moment. Notice the source of the river, the source of satisfaction, the source of refreshment, the source of life. It's God. The center of the eternal city is God himself and the Lamb. So God the Father and God the Son are enthroned at the center of this city, the center and source of, of all eternal blessings. The river is bright as crystal to reflect the glory of God. Going back to last week, you move an inch and you'll be mind blown in a different way than you were before you moved that inch. 
And that, that's just going to happen for eternity. Some might say, well, what about the Holy Spirit? Is the Holy Spirit absent in the new heavens and earth? What do we do with that? I think the answer is not at all. In fact, the only way that John gets a glimpse of any of this, if you go back to last week's passage, Revelation 21.10, is that he was carried away in the Spirit. Right? So the Holy Spirit is absolutely present with Father and Son. He, he just has a different role to play in, in the work of redemption. Moving on, back half of verse 2, also... On either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kind of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Again, another reminder of Eden. If you go back to Genesis 2, verses 8 and 9, it says, The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. Remember this? And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So you got, you got the tree of life, one of God's good gifts prior to the fall of man. Remember uh, when man was banished from the garden in the wake of sin? Remember that, the end of chapter 3? A cherubim was placed with a sword in hand to guard the way to the tree of life. God's way of protecting his image bearers from eternal misery and enslavement to sin. Well now, the tree is back. What we were once banished from is now eternally ours. I think it's critical to stop here for a second and note the fact that the tree is not an end in and of itself. Remember, the gospel is not ultimately a way to get us to heaven, but rather a way to get us to God. The tree exists to nourish and sustain us so that we might enjoy making much of God forever. That's why I think the tree itself is, is not at the center of the eternal city. If you go back to Genesis 2, remember the language, the, the tree of life was in the midst of the garden? In, in the original Hebrew, that means in the center, in the middle of the garden. Now, in Revelation 22, the tree exists on either side of the river. I think that's because the tree is not the crown and glory of the new Jerusalem. God is. God's the centerpiece of the eternal city. What about the healing of the nations? What do you do with that? Are we going to fall down and skid our knees in the new heavens and earth if we run too fast? What's that going to look like? It, uh, are, are little ones going to smash their fingers in cabinet doors like my daughter still does? Based on the fact that the destruction of death will have already happened, Revelation 20 tells us about that. If you want to see death crucified, read Revelation 20 this week. It's a really amazing passage. Based on that fact, and the fact that going back to last week's passage, remember, there will be no more pain. There will be no more death. I'm inclined to, to take this idea of the, the healing of the nation similar to the idea of God's guarding of the eternal city. Remember last week we talked about the fact that angels will stand guard at the gates, um, that the walls will be high. That's not because we need protecting. Right? Evil is going to be eradicated forever. But what that does is it, it gives us a visual reminder for eternity that we're safe in the arms of God. I think the same thing is true of the leaves of the tree of life. That we have this eternal reminder in our line of sight that there will be no more pain. That there will be no more death. Verse 3. 
No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. So the, the reminders of Eden just keep coming, right? In Genesis 3, remember, the curse was, was pronounced upon Adam and on Eve and on creation itself. In the Jer- New Jerusalem, nothing will be accursed. Jesus became a curse for us so that we might experience eternal blessing. That's the gospel. And therefore, Jesus, the lamb who was slain, sits center stage, worthy of worship. It says his servants will worship him. He's due adoration, and we will be excited as his people to worship him forever. Verse 4, I love this verse. And they will see his face. It, it doesn't get any more real than that, people. Seeing the face of God. If you go back to the Old Testament, the book of Exodus, Moses couldn't see the Lord's face and expect to survive the experience. Right? You, you would have a, a better chance of surviving jumping from an airplane without a parachute than staring God in the face. But, but, when, when the Holy Spirit completes the work of sanctification in our lives, we will see God's face And it will be the most glorious experience in all of eternity. You can't possibly wrap your mind around that kind of intimacy. Not our finite human minds. Communion with God. Intimacy with God. Enjoyment of God. Goes on to say in verse 4, And his name will be on their foreheads. So we're marked. We're sealed as God's eternal possession. Never to be snatched from his hand. That's encouraging, right? Ever worry, can, can I be taken out of the hands of God? Is Eden in Genesis 2 and 3, is, is what happened in the wake of the fall of man, is that going to happen again? Should we be worried about that? And the answer is no. Never to be banished from God's presence ever again. No chance of a repeat of what happened in Eden. Verse 5, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light. Going back to last week, I threw out a few questions. Have you ever stood in awe of the moon on a bright night? Have you ever laid under the stars at night and found yourself awestruck by by the great canopy of lights? Have you ever lost a staring contest with the sun really quickly because you're just blinded by its brilliance? All that cosmic stage lighting will look like a keychain flashlight in comparison to the glory of God. That's incredible. God's splendor will light up the entire city. Will make Vegas look dim. Moving on. And they will reign forever and ever. In verse 4, we we get priestly language. Seeing the face of God as his called out people. Here in verse 5, you get kingly language. All right, let let me nerd out for a second, okay? This is really cool stuff. If you go back to Genesis chapters 1 and 2 in the beginning... Man was designed to function as both a a priest and a king. So Adam was created to work the garden and keep it. We normally, when we look at that language, we think of the the idea of exercising dominion. But actually, that language is priestly Levite language. It's the idea of guarding, guarding the garden from the presence of evil, which Adam did a terrible job of, right? Only took two chapters for us to, to get into the heart of Adam abandoning that call. Man was to function as a priest, guarding the the perfect utopian garden sanctuary. And man was to function as a king, right? Exercising dominion over all of creation. uh, Subduing the earth and filling it. That's, That's kingly language. Man was meant to function as a priest and a king. 
Here in the final chapter of the Bible, we see man experiencing the fullness of what he was created for. You ever find yourself frustrated with whether or not you're carrying out God's purposes for your life? I know I do. No frustration over whether or not you're living in the will of God ever again in the new heavens and earth. That's encouraging. We will see his face as priests, and we will reign with him forever as kings, just like it was designed to be in the very beginning. Verse 6, and he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. This language of you can trust these words runs throughout the entire book of Revelation. You actually see it seven times just in the two chapters we've looked at last week and this week. It's really interesting to me how everything comes together with perfect artistry. That's the kind of author that God is. He's very creative. He's very purposeful. When you go back to the garden, let me ask this question. What caused everything to come unraveled in the first place? Did God really say? Did God really say? The book of Revelation is a declaration that God has spoken and what he has said can be trusted. Don't buy into the lie like our first parents that a life of self-determination will bring great joy. It can't. It won't. But the word of God will stand forever. That's that's the declaration of uh, verse 6 here. Verse 7 goes on to say, And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. The Christian life is not a life of stagnancy. It's a life of anticipation. It's a life of expectation. It's a life of expecting God to be on the move. It's a life lived believing that Jesus could return at any time. And not only that, but being excited if he did. Those who live in the the here and now as if at a moment's notice we will see his face. And allowing that vision of what's to come to shape the present, to inform the present. Verse 8, look at how John responds. This is probably exactly what I would do. It says, And I, John... And the one who heard and saw these things, and when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. John's so caught up in a glimpse of God's glory that he's like, man, I got to worship. What, what do I do? And he just looks around for the closest thing. Angel, and he falls at his feet. Angel's like, don't do that. That's really dumb to worship created things rather than the one who created those things in the first place. I'm a created being. I'm not the creator of all things. I'm not the redeemer of all things. We've all done it, right? We've we've made that trade. I've said this before. I'll say it again. I used to be really savvy with trades in middle school. I I could hand off an apple and get a pack of Gushers fruit snacks from a kid in a blink and not feel bad about it for a second. We make the trade that Paul talks about in Romans 1, this idea of exchanging the worship of the creator for the worship of the created. And the reality is we can't help ourselves. We were designed to worship. You're going to worship something. It's not that some people are worshipers and other people aren't. We're all worshipers. It's just a question of what's the object of your affections. Here the angel says, don't make that trade. Don't worship the created. 
That's absurd. Worship the one who creates all things and redeems. Worship God. The angel's saying, I'm going to disappoint you at some point, so don't put your trust in me. If, if only the things that we hope in that aren't God would make those declarations to us, right? Because our fickle human hearts just struggle to see it oftentimes. Our kids are going to fail us. Our spouses are going to fail us. Our jobs are going to fail us. Money is going to fail us and so forth and so on. We could go for hours making up that list. But God will never fail you. Verse 10. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. We're, in the fall, we're going to go through the book of Daniel. So if you've ever gone, let's, man, why don't we go through the real apocalyptic stuff in Revelation? Are we scared of that? No, we're just going to, we're going to take a, kind of a JV version of it in the fall. We're going to go through the book of Daniel. We're going to look at some really crazy stuff. Um, but Daniel's scroll, as you'll see in the fall, was sealed up because the time of fulfillment wasn't near yet. In contrast, here in verse 10, John is instructed not to seal up the words of the prophecy of this unveiling he's experienced. Why? Because Jesus' return is that much nearer. How do we know? Because going back to a couple of weeks ago, I said this, the death blow has been delivered to the serpent's head. At the cross, Jesus delivered the death blow to Satan. When Jesus died and was raised from the dead, we moved into the last days. Does, does that mean Jesus will return tomorrow? Maybe. Maybe not. We don't know. We don't really know when Jesus is coming back. But we should anticipate it with great joy. Verse 11. This is a weird verse. Let the evildoer still do evil, and the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. So for the Christian, this is a call to persevere. Um, Hebrews 10 says it this way. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. In other words, it's fight the good fight of faith, persevere to the end. Going back to a couple of weeks ago, sin will have no dominion over you, Christian. But what do we make of the, the negative statements in verse 11? Let the evildoers still do evil and the filthy still be filthy. What is that? That's weird. The Puritans had this phrase that they would throw around often. Some of you may have seen this before. The same sun that melts the ice hardens the clay. In other words, meaning the same gospel which melts the hearts of some hardens the hearts of others. Some encounter the word of God and it softens their hearts. It leads to repentance and faith. Others encounter God's word and it increases their resistance. It leads to, to, to more evil, more acts of evil. I, I think what verse 11 is saying is if hearing revelation uh, doesn't change you, nothing will. If getting this glimpse of what we've been talking about for two weeks doesn't impact you, doesn't affect your heart, nothing will. For some, it will be the fragrance of life. You see Jesus on his throne and you go, yes, forever, yes. For others, it's the stench of death. It's repulsive, especially those who want to remain on the throne themselves. It's offensive. Verse 12 now King Jesus himself speaks. He says this, Behold, I am coming soon. That's good news. 
for those who see the world as fallen and broken and in need of restoration. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside, verse 15, are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. That these verses say that Jesus is returning to judge his enemies in order to create eternal peace for his followers. That you get a really good visual of what that looks like in Revelation 19. Jesus returning on a white horse, all tatted up, robe dipped in blood, eyes like a flame of fire. Jesus is going to open up a can on his enemies, and it's going to be quite impressive. In fact, his angelic army is wearing all white. They don't plan to lose this fight or even get a drop of blood on them. He must do this in order to make everything sad untrue for his followers. Heaven is no heaven at all when you have to walk around looking over your shoulder at every turn, wondering if evil is at your back. According to these verses as well, there will be varying degrees of reward for believers and punishment for unbelievers on that day. Does that mean that salvation is is merit-based? No. John believes, he's in alignment with the rest of Scripture, that salvation comes by grace alone. In fact, if you go back to Revelation 5, it's this big, beautiful picture of worship. It says this, and these are John's recorded words as well. And they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take up the scroll and its seals. They're singing to Jesus. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. So John knows that the blood of Jesus is our only hope. That our only hope is to trust in the person and the finished work of Jesus on our behalf. But that doesn't mean that God won't punish and reward differently. That's what the word recompense means in the original Greek. It it means wage or reward. Don't, don't let the, especially if this is your background, don't let the absurdity of the prosperity gospel um, cause you to neglect what John is saying here. God's perfect justice will be demonstrated on this day. And that means that God will reward believers differently and will punish unbelievers differently on that day. So that the choices that you make really do matter. They can't save you, but they matter. Verse 16 I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David, the bright morning star. Look at that language. I'm the root and the descendant. So Jesus says, I'm the root of David, meaning that I come before him. I'm the source of eternity past. And I'm the descendant of David. I come after him. I'm the promised hero who came to crush the serpent's head. And it says, I'm the bright morning star. That's, that's language that goes back to the book of Numbers. There's a prophecy there that talks about a king that would come to exercise dominion as the one true king. So in other words, verse 16, Jesus is saying, I was king, I am king, and I will be king. Eternal sovereign of the universe, never to be dethroned. Verse 17, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. The the Holy Spirit is excited about the king's return to make everything sad and true. The bride, that is the church, is excited about the king's return to make everything sad and true. Goes on to say in verse 17, and let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life 
without price. Again, John hopes that this vision of the king on his throne, uh, encompassing with his glory the eternal city, will melt the heart, will melt the ice rather than harden the clay. That, that many will find themselves thirsty for Jesus and his kingdom. And so if that's you this morning, understand and know that you can't buy a ticket into the new Jerusalem. We talked about this last week. It's without price. Because if it was with price, you couldn't afford it. Right? You, you'd have to ask the question constantly, how good is good enough? How do I know when I've crossed that threshold so that when I stand before the God of the universe one day, He will applaud and say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into my presence forever. How do you know? No one's good enough on their own to hold their good deeds before God and have that pile be high enough to the sky to impress him and cause him to go, here's your golden ticket. It's by grace alone that we're restored to God and eternally satisfied in him. And so if you profess to to not be a Christian this morning, um, but this passage makes you thirsty for Jesus, you go, man, I, I, I find Jesus to be very compelling right now, then, then I would implore you to come to him with nothing more than, than your sin and the empty hands of faith and trust in him as Savior and King. Verse 18, I warn everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. Again, going back to the garden, did God really say? Is God's word good enough? In in the narrow sense, we we don't have the authority to add to the book of Revelation. In the broad sense, we don't have the authority to add to any of Scripture or to take away from any of Scripture. And so you, you might go, well, no worries. I don't have any intentions. My next project is not going to be to write the 67th book of the Bible. That's not what I'm interested in doing. Um, I don't have a problem with the books that currently exist in the Bible, so I think we're good, Jamie. But let me frame it this way. The legalist adds to the Scriptures, Right? What's in the Bible is not enough, so we must add rules on top of rules on top of rules to be obeyed. All of a sudden, you're expected to obey rules that you can't find a Bible verse for anywhere. Don't go there. Don't taste that. Don't touch that. Don't do that. Do this. Do these things. That was the MO of the Pharisees, was it not? Adding to Scripture. On the flip side, the irreligious take away from the Scriptures. What's in the Bible is too much, so that the the person of license just proverbially rips out pages uh, from the scriptures, verses they don't like. Not tangibly, probably, right? We're not that heretical. We just choose on occasion to ignore certain verses because uh, they, uh, they threaten our kingdom. They threaten uh, what we believe to be our joy in that particular moment, our idea of the good life. Martin Luther, uh, he, one of the, Protestant reformers about 500 years ago. Um, This is not a statement about Catholicism. I'm about to throw a quote up. But but I want you to know that Luther was in hostile opposition to much of what was going on in the Catholic Church. I want you to see uh, from the heart of a man who felt that way about the Catholic Church what he would say uh, about uh, verse 18. He says this. He says, I am more afraid of my own heart than of the Pope and all his cardinals. I have within me the great Pope, self. 
Self-determination is what got Adam and Eve kicked out of the garden in the first place. Rather than God's world and God's word, it can be our world and our word. Jesus says here, that's not the Christian life at all. Christian life is a life of coming under the authority of God's word, knowing that he created us and he knows what's best for us, trusting him, that God's word is not an antagonist to your joy. You are the greatest enemy of your own joy. I'm the greatest enemy of my own joy in those moments where, where I buck against God and who he is and what he says. He's the designer of the whole thing, right? Verse 20. He who testifies to these things says, surely I'm coming soon. Again, the, the death blow has already been delivered to the serpent's head. We're in the final era before the return of Jesus to make everything sad, untrue. And John says, look at his words, amen, come Lord Jesus, right? That's John's response after 22 chapters of seeing this massive unveiling of unseen realities, mind-blowing, glory of God, splendor of God, cosmic-sized city, uh, globally, ethnically diverse citizenship, uh, the beauty of the new heaven and earth, and John responds with, come Lord Jesus, I think the question for us this morning is, are our hearts aligned with the Apostle John's? What do you say? As the author of Hebrews puts it, are you, are you eagerly waiting for him? Is that, is that part of uh, what's threaded into your life as a Christian? See, there, there are two dangers that, um, that concern me especially as, as a pastor, as I look out on the landscape of the church and the community and um, this world of cultural Christianity that we live in, intermingled with true Christianity, two dangers. Number one, um, not wanting Jesus to return until dot, dot, dot. Until I get my, man, I just want to get my degree. I just, I just want to get married first, and then Jesus can come back. I, I just want to have kids and, and then Jesus can come back. Well, I've got kids now. I, I just want to see him graduate high school. If we can just get there and then Jesus comes back the day after graduation, that would be awesome. I love my wife, but Jesus is better. I love my two little girls, but Jesus is better. I love the fact that I just finished up a master's program and I can read whatever book I want this week, but Jesus is better. To, to say, give me Jesus, just not until dot, 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 whatever you finish that sentence with is probably an idol. That's one danger, not wanting Jesus to return until we get our hands on that which we really want most, that which we really covet most, which isn't necessarily him at times. The second danger is waiting eagerly for the future but not necessarily because it has anything to do with Jesus, but rather uh, for eternal golf or the absence of pain or really cool eternal housing in this massive urban project known as the New Jerusalem. Is everything described in Revelation 21 and 22 glorious? Yes and amen, it is. It is incredible. I'm still, I, I can go back and find new nuggets that just blow my mind about these chapters of the Bible. But everything is a distant second place to the gain of God. 
I've shared this quote before, and I'll probably share it a hundred more times before I die, Lord willing, because it just encompasses this point so well. John Piper, in his book, God, the God, God is the Gospel, says this. He says, The critical question for our generation and for every generation is this. If you could have heaven with no sickness and with all the friends you ever had on earth and all the food you ever liked and all the leisure activities you ever enjoyed and all the natural beauties you ever saw, all the physical pleasures you ever tasted and no human conflict or any natural disasters. That sounds really appealing, doesn't it? All my friends huddled up together eating all of my favorite foods, uh, all of my hobbies uh, at at my leisure, whenever I want to participate in them. No more pain, no more sickness. You go, yeah, that sounds fantastic. But here's the diagnostic. You get all that. Could you be satisfied with heaven, he says, if Christ were not there? He goes on to say, Christ did not die to forgive sinners who go on treasuring anything above seeing and savoring God. And people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It is a way to get people to God. It's a way of overcoming every obstacle to everlasting joy in God. If we don't want God above all things, we have not been converted by the gospel. That is a sobering statement. Allow that to be a diagnostic for you this morning. For your heart it is come, Lord Jesus, the cry of your heart, like it is the Apostle John. It's the cry of those who truly know and love him. Are you eagerly waiting for him? Would you be happy if he came back right now? Does the thought of seeing him face to face make everything else pale in comparison? I'm confident that if we live with that kind of anticipation... I have a sneaking suspicion that the church at large would look radically different. Because everything sad is not yet untrue, John closes with these words, verse 21. He says, The grace of the Lord Jesus be with all. Amen. Then until he returns, we desperately need his grace. This is not a life of self-sufficiency of self-existence until Jesus returns to make everything sad untrue. On our own, we're hopeless. Coming back to Luther, he said, "Uh, Holy Spirit, if you leave me to my own devices, I will wreck the whole thing, anything you put in front of me. But his grace is sufficient. And so by grace, we, we march onward as the church, all the while declaring, anytime you're ready, Jesus, just come on and let's get on with the show. Make everything sad and true. We long to see you. We eagerly wait for your return. Man, what a glorious day that will be. In a moment, we're going to take communion. Uh, this meal uh, is for the church. If you're a Christian, this is for you. Um, we take communion here by taking the bread and dipping it in the cup, the bread representing the broken body of Jesus, the cup representing his shed blood. Um, as you prepare to take communion, and James will call us up when it's time, uh, you know, typically I encourage you to look backwards uh, to the, the, the death and resurrection of Jesus' past tense. But this morning I encourage you to look forward to the lamb who was slain 
It's not, it's not that by looking forward we forget what's happened. Uh, we see Jesus, we're reminded by his scars of what he's done for us. I would encourage you to, to get a glimpse of the king on his throne, the one who died for you, the one who entered into the slums of human history to make a way for uh, man to be restored to God forever. And allow that to move your heart so that when you come up, uh, let's come with a, uh, with a heart of celebration this morning. Excited about what Jesus has done for us, but also excited about what he's going to do in making everything sad untrue. Thanks for listening. If you have any questions about this message, visit us at crosspointptc.com. There you can contact us. Find further resources and directions to our gatherings. That's C-R-O-S-S-P-O-I-N-T-E-P-T-C dot com.